0: If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you are new to Covenant, we have for quite some time been working our way through John's Gospel. Uh, we took a, a bit of a hiatus uh, right after Christmas to go through Romans, chapter 8, and now we're back to where we left off in John's Gospel. I am going to read for you this morning. Uh, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37, I'm sorry, verse 27, and going to verse 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along, I'd encourage you to grab one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you and find your way to John uh, chapter 12. I love for us to be able to uh, to, to, to see uh, in our own Bibles uh, the words that I'm reading and, and preaching Bringing our Bibles with us uh, helps us to really learn the Bible that we have, the Bible that we own. So if you don't own a Bible, just take that one uh, that, uh, that you see there in the seat back in front of it. We'd love for you to have it. Um, that's the English Standard Version. It's, it's the version, it's the translation that, that we preach from here. And um, uh, I just, I, I love for you to be able to, to see it uh, with your own eyes so that you know I'm not making this up as I go along, okay? So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's inspired and unerring and life-giving Word. This is the Word of God. Let's give it our full attention. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light believe in the light that you may become sons of light when Jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself from them though he had done so many signs before them they still did not believe in him this is God's word let's pray And now, O God, we ask that you would help us to hear your word today, to hear it and to understand it, and that by your spirit you would apply it to our hearts, that we would receive it with joy and with obedience. Father, I pray for the one who has known you for years, that you would encourage them and challenge them and ground them once again in the surety of their hope. For young and new believers, God, I pray that you would use this word today to strengthen their new and young faith and god for those who do not yet know what to do with jesus god i pray that you would bring them to believe today that you would draw them to yourself today for their joy and for your glory and we pray this in jesus name amen you may have a seat now if you can remember back before christmas to where we were Jesus, in the previous section, had had begun to tell them about his coming death. There had been attempts by some of the religious authorities to kill Jesus already. They'd been plotting against him, and each time their plans really came to nothing, because we're told in various times by the Apostle John that his hour, that's his language, his hour had not yet come. The proper time, the God-designed time, the time according to God's overarching sovereign providence had not yet come for jesus the son of god the son of man to go to the cross and so all of those attempts had failed so far but now he comes to the hour he's in jerusalem now this is his final trip to jerusalem he's facing his final passover and it is in this very couple of days where he will be turned over to the religious authorities who will turn him over to Rome. He will be tried as an insurrectionist. He'll be accused of all kinds of things from blasphemy, you name it. And then he will be crucified, executed on a cross. The hour has come. And all of this is weighing on our Lord. And you see there what he says. The agony in his words. Now is my soul troubled. Now the... Word translated, troubled here, is a strong word. It carries with it ideas of suffering, grief. It's agony, really. Jesus is describing the condition of his soul as as anguished. And remember that this is Jesus who we're talking about, the everlasting Son of God, who has always been the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, And his soul is troubled. He, the God-man, is in agony as he contemplates what he's going to have to endure on the cross. Now just let's hang out on that insight for just a moment. What does it tell us that Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, what does it tell us that he was in agony? Does it not tell us that he was truly human? That Jesus' humanity was not just simply a mask or an illusion, but that in the mystery and miracle of the incarnation, the everlasting Son of God actually became a man. He took on not just human skin and bone, but a human nature that could feel all the pain that we feel, that could feel all the anguish that we experience. He was truly human. It also tells us that he's able, therefore, to sympathize with those who are also in agony, with those who suffer. Listen, dear soul, you are never alone in your suffering, even if it feels that way at times. And I know oftentimes well-meaning people come to you and try to tell you things to lift your spirits when you're in agony. And typically they they are very well-intentioned, but sometimes it doesn't really quite hit home and Sometimes all we need in that moment is somebody to just sit on the ash heap with us for a moment and say, I know that this is awful. And think about what it does for our hearts to know that King Jesus is able to do that for us. That whatever it is you are suffering, whatever loss you've experienced, whatever agony you've gone through, Jesus can sit upon the ash heap, as it were, and say, and you can know that he is one who has agonized also, not just with you, but for you. But this also tells us, I think, that it's possible to be in a state of agony, to have your soul so desperately troubled, and to grieve, and yet at the same time remain entirely faithful to the Lord. As we see repeatedly in the Psalms, The psalmists offer up lament. In fact, there are a whole category of psalms called the Psalms of Lament. What is lament? Lament is agony, it is grief, it is sorrow put into words. And whole psalms are are given over to the psalmist lifting up their own lament. And in those times, it's not the absence of faith at all. Rather, lament is, is what happens when agony meets our language, when suffering is given words. And so we can know that in those times when your soul is troubled, when your heart is anguished, when you feel nearly overcome by the sadness and the weight of it all, that does not necessarily mean that you've lost an ounce of faith, You may not be sinning at all. Was Jesus sinning when he was in anguish? No. And there are times when God causes us to walk through the the desperate swamp of anguish and to know that you can walk faithfully with the Lord, you can believe in him fiercely, you can hold on to him, and know more importantly that he holds on to you even in the midst of your anguish. Now, here's an important theological note, and I don't want you to miss this. We see here something similar as to what happens when Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe Jesus just a little while later from this in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to the Father, and he's asking if there's any other way to bring about the perfect divine will other than him drinking the wrath of God. Remember, he prays... Is there any other way? Can this cup, this cup of your wrath, can it pass from me instead of me needing to drink it down? Is there any other way? It's very similar to what's happening here. My soul is in anguish, and right after this we're told he departs and leaves from them, no doubt, to be with his father, to pray, to seek him, to be prepared for what he's about to go through. And what I what I want us to avoid here very carefully is reading those passages and thinking that somehow there is competition between the will of the Son and the will of the Father. To somehow think that somehow there is a division or separation of wills within the triune God, because there is not. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one in essence, the one indivisible God. God is one. And there is no divided up will between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, therefore. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit hold to, express, possess one indivisible, unified will. What we hear in Jesus' words here, what we hear in his words of anguish in the garden as he prays, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, is we hear Jesus praying according to his human nature. The nature that he took upon himself in his incarnation, that he might identify with us. And in this, he is leading, or that that is leaving a pattern for our own praying. That we can pray in godliness and we can pray in faithfulness. Oh Lord, if there's any other way, could you make this pass? Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And in that agony, I think I think we can surmise that Jesus' agony was was twofold. Certainly. Jesus agonized over the physical torments that he was going to experience on the cross. One of the cruelest forms of death that the Romans had invented. In fact, it was so cruel and so agonizing and so humiliating, if you were a Roman citizen, it was illegal for you to be crucified. And the Son of God, by the miracle of incarnation, became a man with all of a human's capacity to feel pain. Jesus did not approach the cross as a stoic. He did not approach the cross as some dispassionate observer. He would feel every millimeter of the spikes that would be driven through his wrists and feet. He would feel the puncturing of his flesh. He would feel the explosion of the nerve endings. He would feel and hear the shattering of bone and the tearing apart of ligaments and tendons he would hang there in such physical agony as we cannot truly fully imagine but for all of the horror of the physical torture of the cross surely the deeper horror for Jesus was what his soul would bear as he would carry the weight of our sin the shame of our guilt that he would bear upon his shoulders The judgment of God Almighty. The judgment that we had earned with our sin. And he would do it all in that moment. I can't imagine just bearing the weight of my sin. Let alone the sins of all of his people across all generations. And yet that is what he did. That is what he was facing. And that was the cause, the greatest, deepest cause of his agony. And so he prays out of that. Am I to ask the Father, get me out of this? Is that how I should pray? Again, we hear echoes of his prayer that he will pray in the garden. If there's any way for this cup to pass from me. And yet he says, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He writes, terribly dark. Must that guilt be? for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must be that weight of human sin which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood and agony at Gethsemane and cry out at Golgotha, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How great the weight of sin must be that the God-man would cry out in anguish under the pressure of it all. But he says, for this purpose I've come This is why I've come to this hour. You see it there at the end of verse 27 in the first clause of verse 28. I've come for this purpose. It makes no sense for me to avoid this because this is the very reason why I've come. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. To do anything other than to go to the cross would be to fail at the very purpose for which he came. So Jesus' execution was not just some tragic accident. It was not merely a case of him being a victim of conspirators. Is there a reason why the Father sent him? But there was more than agony on Jesus' mind. The horror of his sin-bearing death, which was right before him, was met with his fervent desire to glorify his Father, and what won out was his desire to glorify the Father. For Jesus to say, Father, glorify your name. That's another way of saying, Father, glorify yourself. God has always revealed himself in part to his people through his various names and titles. There's not one name or one title that can suffice to reveal the glory and infinite perfections of God. One name, one title will not do it. God reveals Himself as Yahweh, that covenant God, the I Am, the self-existing One. But He's also God Almighty, and He's El Shaddai, and He's the provider, and He is the creator, and He is the redeemer. And on and on it goes, Scripture applying to Him, all of these titles, all of these names. And so when Jesus says, glorify Your name, what He is saying is, knowing that there is such a close correspondence... Between God and the names that he has revealed himself by, what Jesus is praying there is saying, God, reveal yourself for who you are. The world cannot be sustained by a God of our own making or an unspecified general sort of deity. The God of the Bible is very particular. Biblical faith, Christianity, is very specific. We're not just interested in seeing people become general theists. We want to see them worship the triune God who has come to us in the person of Jesus to bear our sins away. We want them to worship and serve this God, the God who is. And this is what Jesus is praying for. Father, glorify your name. Show who you are. And that's what drove Jesus in all He did. That's what drove His obedience in this human nature that He took on. A zeal, an ardor for the glory of God. And beloved, when we fail to pursue the Lord Jesus in obedience, when we fail to follow Him properly and to obey, it's because fundamentally we have a glory problem. It's because we are preferring the glory of something or someone else to the glory of God. You can trace all of our sin back to that. It's a glory problem. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is always an attack on the glory of God. It's always an attempt to replace his glory with the glory of another. And then something remarkable happens. After Jesus expresses his anguish and then his greater desire to bring glory to the Father, a voice comes from heaven, and it's the voice of his father. And this is described and this is the-, the way it's described, at least, is I-, I think the very final sign that God gives before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And he speaks in a way that can be readily understood, and his voice is heard. You see it there at the end of verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again what's he saying well this is one of three instances that the gospel writers record for us of God speaking in an audible fashion so that the people all around Jesus could hear it this happens at his baptism it happens at the transfiguration and it happens here and he speaks and he gives once again evidence of his reality And he says, I I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. And I think what the Father is saying in that moment is he's saying, I've been glorifying my name since the moment of the incarnation. Since that moment that Jesus was miraculously conceived in the the womb of a virgin. Remember, Remember that moment where pregnant Elizabeth and pregnant with John the Baptist and pregnant Mary, her cousin, they meet and... And John the Baptist, still in utero, leaps within Elizabeth's womb as she comes into the presence of the Lord Jesus, still in utero. The Father is glorified even then. He was glorified at the moment of Jesus' birth, when in the darkness of that night, outside the town of Bethlehem, the skies were filled with, uh, with an angelic host. And what did they cry out? Glory to God in the highest. Of course, you can trace God glorifying his name all the way back to the moment of creation when he speaks and it comes to be. When everything he makes is a testimony to his goodness and his greatness, his power and his glory, so that even the most ardent unbeliever cannot escape the burden of their conscience which continues to tell them God is But God says, and I will glorify it too. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it. And right there, I believe he's speaking most directly to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Because it is on the cross where God will glorify himself as well. It is on the cross in all of its terror, in all of its gore, in all of its horror, where God will glorify himself because it is on the cross where God will bring to light, literally before the eyes of all the onlookers, both his justice and his mercy. He will show them the horror of sin as the person of his son hangs there on the cross. This is what sin has done. And he will glorify and magnify his mercy in showing, but it's my son on that cross and not you. Oh, he will be glorified in the cross and he'll be glorified again again in the resurrection, and it will be glorified from this day on and forevermore. Now, by this time, we're no longer surprised that there's confusion among the crowds. Do you see it there in verse 29? Some are looking around and they're saying, I think I heard thunder. Others are saying, no, it was a voice. It was the voice of an angel speaking to Jesus. And do you see Jesus' reply in verse 30? This voice has come for your sake, not mine. This was yet another sign from the Father to testify on behalf of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. The days of any credible excuses for unbelief are over. God has spoken. And then in verses 31 and 32... Jesus describes His coming crucifixion in terms both of judgment and mercy. You see verse 31? He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. These are definitive statements here. Jesus is saying, Now the time has come. The hour of His crucifixion is simultaneously the hour of judgment judgment upon the world and judgment upon satan in fact what jesus lays out for us here is kind of a threefold accomplishment of the cross it will involve the judgment of the world the judgment of satan and the salvation of an innumerable host of people from the days of adam and eve up until the very moment of christ's return first of all the judgment of the world now jesus says I want you to know that when you see me on the cross, I want you to know that one of the things that's happening is the world is being judged. The cross inaugurates this judgment. It inaugurates this new order in the world whereby the world and Satan are judged. Because the the cross unmasks the world in all of its wickedness. The cross stands as testimony that our sin is not just some sort of, I don't know, childlike irresponsibility. But that our sin is wickedness. That our sin is so bad, it required God himself to hang in our place. So God unmasks the the pretense of the world that would say, sin is not bad. And if it is bad, it's not that bad. Now is the judgment of the world. He also says that it's it's the time for Satan to be judged. Notice how he refers to Satan, the the ruler or the prince of this world. World. And that title says more about the world even than it says about Satan. Satan be referred to as the the ruler of this world because the world loves him. The world loves Satan. The world loves what Satan provides. They, They love his indulgence. And today, if you hear modern day Uh, people who are are fascinated with Satan. Some of them don't believe in any, any real, actual, objective being of Satan at all, but they love Satan as a symbol for their own personal liberation. They love Satan. Because at the end of the day, what Satan means for them is the worship of themselves. The average Satanist never draws a pentagram or wears particularly heavy black makeup. The average Satanist is the self-worshipper next door. The world has cast their lot with the devil. They've welcomed him and they listen to his guidance and they follow his temptations. And is there any credible dispute to this? Nonstop war, open disregard for the law of God, the citizens of nations openly violating the laws of their nations, hatred between neighbors, hatred between strangers. In our middle-class, nice neighborhoods, there is adultery, adultery, false religion, false prophets, magic, fortune-telling, all manner of paganism, right in everyday, ordinary, middle-class, American, suburban life. We see more signs of paganism than we do of Christianity. Violence in our communities, violence in our homes, violence against the unborn. We see it in the church. We see it among pastors where pastors are profiteering and abusive. We hear the stories of manipulative, lying, money-grubbing pastors. What a scar upon our nation. Indifference toward the suffering, runaway materialism, open indulgence of covetousness. You know, uh, so much of the marketing industry is an appeal to people's sinful, coveting desires. And we see it as a good thing what God condemns. Politicians, the people we elect, lie to us, they profit illegally because of their power and their influence we elect politicians we send them to Washington and they come out multi multi multi-millionaires it's not my goal to rant on politics today I'm not going to do that what I'm saying is if we're going to complain about I mean we elect these people and it's both parties who do it just in case you were wondering Calvin said that God often judges a people by giving them unjust rulers Immorality is practiced openly, it's celebrated, so-called serious thinkers, from lawmakers and scientists to TED talk lecturers have openly discussed that minors, even prepubescent children may consent to sex with adults. It's all interesting conversation for our societal elites. This June, our own town square will be festooned with rainbow flags celebrating sexual immorality and calling it pride and saying pride is a good thing. And on that very same town square, just as happened last year, I'm sure will happen again this year, a stage will be constructed. Drag performers will dance in sexually suggestive ways in front of children whose parents brought them there to watch. And then there's us. With our self-righteousness and our greed and our resentment and our anger and our lusts and our indulgence of pornography, you know what? If professing Christians stopped consuming pornography, it would put a serious dent in their profits. How about we try that? Our steady refusal to follow even the most basic of the Bible's instructions for husbands and wives, our collective indifference over the fact that many of our neighbors are going to hell. And then we get upset with the mere mention of God's judgment and wonder why God would be so harsh. Satan is the ruler of this world because the world loves him and worships him and serves him, and he even gets a little bit of our heart as well. And it would all be so hopeless if it weren't for the cross. But here Jesus tells us that his sin-bearing death on the cross will inaugurate an age of judgment. Judgment upon the sinful world and judgment upon the ruler of this world. And as one scholar puts it, quote, the cross is the locus of a cosmic battle in which Jesus achieves a decisive victory over Satan. What Jesus is telling us here when he says... Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be put down. What he is saying is, he is declaring in our hearing, I win. Jesus wins. And you know, for those of us, I was going to say who cling to Christ, for those of us to whom Christ has clung, for those of us who are held by Christ, for those of us who, by the grace of God, behold in Jesus the beauty of our own salvation. We are caught up in that victory. We are the beneficiaries of the fact that Jesus wins. And we are told in the book of Revelation that a day is coming after the return of Christ. And after he consummates the, ends of the, the end of the ages. And he brings all of his people home. That there will be a shout that goes up among all of the millions and millions of redeemed throughout the ages as they witness the final destruction of the enemy. Between now and then we can lift up little shouts here and there because the victory is won. And then we see in verse 32 that the cross will also mean The salvation of his people. He says there in verse 32, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When he says lifted up, uh, John tells us he said this so that they would know by what kind of manner of death he was speaking. He meant crucifixion and everybody there knew exactly what he was talking about. And he says, when that happens, when I'm lifted up on that cross, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. Earlier, uh, in in chapter 6, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And here he says, I will draw all people to myself. And there's no contradiction there, because there is no division of will between the Father and the Son. The point is that God alone is the explanation for every sinner that comes to Jesus. Now, some have been confused by Jesus' words here, where he says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men. Some translations say all people, but literally it's all men when I draw all men to myself. Jesus is not, of course, referring to every person who will ever live. Otherwise, every person who ever lived would come to him, right? Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to try really hard, and I'm going to put forth my, my best effort, and I'm pretty good when I try hard, And I'm going to do everything I can to draw as many people as possible. And I'm going to to, to try to draw them all. and, and, And all I can promise you is my best effort. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I will do this. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, some have said, therefore, salvation is intended for every single person who's ever lived. And that is not what Jesus is saying. As we've said before, those types of universal phrases like that, were often used among uh, the Jews in that area, not just the Jews, but all the Semitic peoples. They, they spoke in what one writer, one historian calls, they spoke in primary colors. You know, very bold, decisive, uh, universal statements. It's, it's like just previous in the text that we were in nine or ten weeks ago, when the Pharisees see that a group of Greeks, Gentiles, have come to Jerusalem and they want to see Jesus, they want to meet with Jesus. And do you remember what the Pharisees say? They say, see, the whole world has gone after him. Well, they're just speaking in a way that was common at that time. What they meant was, he's drawing not only our own people, he's drawing not only Jews, he's drawing Gentiles as well. The, that's what they meant by the whole world. It's what's meant in the Bible. That the salvation of God through Christ is going to go to the whole world. Meaning, there's not a single nation left out. There's not a single peoples left out. But God is going to extend his salvation across the world to all nations. Jesus is saying that right here. When I'm lifted up on the cross, I'm going to draw all manner of people to myself. I'm going to draw people from around the world to myself. And one of the things that is so extraordinary about this is he's saying, the manner of my death, in, in the gore and the suffering of the cross... That is the means, the message of this very thing is what's going to draw people to me. God has chosen the most offensive religious message that we've ever heard as the means by which sinners will come to faith. I mean, what does Paul write in, first, in the first two chapters of First Corinthians? In two chapters, he dedicates most of those two chapters to the foolishness and the offense of the message of the cross. He says, it offends Jews and it offends Gentiles. There's not a single people group that are left out. It offends everybody. He calls the message of the cross a scandal. And people stumble over it. And people see it and they see weakness instead of strength. They see foolishness instead of wisdom. They see death instead of life. And yet, Paul says, for many, it is the fragrance of life. Now, what made the difference? Why is it, Christian, why is it that when you hear the message of Christ and Him crucified, your heart melts with gratitude and affection? Why is that? Can you explain it any other way than God drew you to Himself? Why do some look at the cross and hate it, and others look to the cross and love their Savior? Why is it? Only God's sovereign grace can explain such an offense becoming in our hearts our only hope. It is through the cross, through the proclamation of the cross, through the steady communication, uplifting preaching of the cross that sinners are brought to faith. We must never, ever, ever abandon it. You know, the denominations that have given up on preaching the cross did so because they thought the message was just getting in the way, that it would interfere with their ability to reach people. You know, those churches and denominations that have stopped preaching Christ crucified didn't do so because they thought that that would limit their reach. They did so because they thought it would increase their reach. But what happened? They've all died. They've all died. And the churches that have continued to be faithful to the message of the cross... They've grown and they've survived in the midst of all this massive decline. And why is that? Because when Jesus is lifted up, he draws sinners to himself. Notice the crowd's response. and We see here just their continued unbelief. Verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say he's going to be crucified? Who is this son of man? So the crowd's rebuttal to Jesus is they go to their Bible which is a good place to go when they say the law they mean what we call the old testament the hebrew bible and they say when we read our bibles we see that this isn't going to happen at all the messiah is not going to suffer and die he's going to be with us forever by the time of the first century judaism had taught because it hadn't always taught this but it had come to teach that the messiah was going to be a this worldly ruler that he would come and he would set up his throne in Jerusalem and he would reign there forever, therefore always being with them, reigning from Jerusalem, giving an earthly worldwide kingdom to the Jewish people. Now, Judaism had had not always held to that. That was not the Judaism of Abraham. That was not the Judaism of Moses. But it had become the Judaism of the first century. And the problem is they're just misreading their own scriptures. Because if they read carefully their own scriptures, say Isaiah 53, or Zechariah 3, or Psalm 22, they would see that the Messiah was a suffering servant. That he was come to give his life as a ransom. That he was come to, to heal his people by the stripes on his own body. That he would bear the iniquity of us all. Their own scriptures testified to this. And yet they lost it with their obsession for a this-world worldly kingdom and before we judge them we better look at our own hearts too often in our own day Christians have followed suit by setting our sights on a this worldly kingdom and what we come up with is a domesticated Jesus who achieves worldly political power and what we've lost is the Christ of cosmic glory and everlasting rule so this is still that persistent ignorance and unbelief on the part of the people and so how does jesus answer them well he gives them a a final sober warning and we see it there in verses 35 through 37 jesus answers the crowd not by systematically taking apart their biblical ignorance he's done that in the past the time is done for that now is the time for warning And so he warns them about his soon coming departure. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. He speaks of the light here, just as we hear in the prologue of John. The light is another way of Jesus referring to himself. He is the light. Sons of the light, children of the light are those who have come to Christ. It's not some kind of new age weirdo thing. It's it's Christ. He says, the hour has come. Look at what else he says. He says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He is warning them. You are still grappling over matters of knowledge you should possess. You're misreading your own scriptures. You need to hear me now. I'm not here much longer. It says in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light. Your problem is unbelief. Believe in me. And we need to hear the warnings of Jesus' words. He's telling them that they must not assume that the opportunity to believe will always be present for them if they harden their hearts while they have Jesus in front of them, what will happen in a matter of a day or two when he's gone from their sight? I think the implication of Jesus' words is that if you refuse to believe in me while I'm in front of you, then the opportunity for you to believe after I depart will be taken away. You know, we, we can't miss what Jesus is saying in this whole passage here. We can't we can't miss kind of the the implications in terms of judgment. And that's that's become an embarrassing topic, unfortunately, for Christians. And if you're not yet a Christian here, I'm gonna say some things that are going to be hard for you, okay? And it's not because it's my I I, I do not make it my goal in life to offend non-Christians. Um Whenever I offend non-Christians, it's, it's usually, you know, just uh, uh, because of the nature of my own personality. But I do want—I I, I do want to give—I do want to do justice to Jesus's own words, okay? And 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 oftentimes, many Christians avoid altogether the subject of judgment, in particular the H word, hell or they outright deny it, or they reinvent the doctrine of hell and judgment to mean something that's really not all that bad. As we've said many times here, Jesus has more to say about the coming judgment of God and about hell specifically than any other individual in the entire Bible. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus spoke of the hell of fire. He warned about the danger in Matthew chapter 5 of, quote, the whole body being thrown into hell. In Mark chapter 9, he refers to the unquenchable fire of hell. The place, he says, where the impenitent are, quote, thrown. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said that he, along with his holy angels, will gather together all the sinners, all of the lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, Jesus refers to hell as the place of outer darkness. And if people doubt that Jesus spoke clearly or often about the judgment to come, then they've just not read the Gospels carefully. You can go to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 23, chapter 25, chapter 26. You can go to Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 16, Luke chapter 9, John chapter 5, right here, John chapter 12, and so forth. And I think that in as much as we struggle to accept and believe the Bible's warnings about judgment to come, and Jesus' warnings about hell specifically, in as much as we avoid that or push back against it, or are embarrassed by it, It's because we have failed to rightly consider the holiness of God and the wickedness of sin. And as though to remind us of this problem, do you see the reaction of the crowd in verse 37? They still did not believe in him. Do you see the words immediately preceding that in verse 37? Though he had done so many signs before them. We've seen the importance of that word signs in the Gospel of John. It's John's word for Jesus' miracles. It's a reminder that Jesus' miracles were not just sheer exercises of power, but they were public testimonies to his everlasting deity and authority. Every one of his miracles was a sign establishing that before the eyes of every person. You read about the miracles of Jesus and you say, I would have believed had I seen that. And yet I wonder. So many did not. And here, now even after hearing the voice of God from heaven and hearing the preacher, Jesus, declare once again the truth, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. As we've said so many times here, unbelief is a stubborn sin. It's not just the natural effect of a lack of evidence. It is a chosen position. We we don't believe because we don't want to believe. Gordon Ketty writes, those unwilling to believe become progressively unable to believe. It's precisely what the prophet Isaiah declared in Isaiah chapter 6 would happen. That unbelief yields a hardening of heart and that God will turn over those who who persist in their unbelief. He will turn them over to an unbelieving, unmoved heart. Leon Morris, the great New Testament scholar, writes this, They have rejected the gracious invitation of God, and it is God, nonetheless, who has decreed that those who act in this way have their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened. It's precisely what Paul will say in Romans chapter 9. And so please, please hear the warning of Jesus. Ask yourself, have you believed? Have you trusted in Christ? You see, Jesus does not invite you to come to a religion of legalism whereby you do certain things and then merit your way into glory. That is not the faith of the Bible. The world can give you that all day long. Only Jesus gives a sinner what a sinner really needs, and that's grace. That's grace that says... Don't try to obey your way into heaven. You'll never be good enough. But here's the deal. Jesus has been good enough. And he did die in your place. And he did bear away your guilt if you will believe in him. And you, and you think, well, it sounds so simple. But, oh, the brokenness and humility it requires. We're wired to prefer a religion that says, do these things and you'll be saved. We want that kind of religion until you come to realize the depth of your sin. And then you run to grace. You run to Christ. Will you do that today? Hear these sober words of Jesus and leave behind your unbelief, leave behind your sin. None of, it, none of your sin is better than Jesus. So come to Jesus. Come to your Savior who did not consider it too high a price to pay for your soul that he would lay down his life. No one would ever love you like that. Martin Luther once said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. What he meant by that is if you look through the Bible, what do you see? God reveals himself as I am. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring. Jesus calls God my father. He teaches us to pray our father. And He presents Himself to us not as a potential Savior for hypothetical people, but as my Savior, as your Savior, the Savior of every person who turns from their sin and looks to Him in faith. And that's what you can have today. The Bible has the remarkably good news that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. There's those personal pronouns again. You don't ride the back of someone else's salvation. You come to Christ as a sinner, and He saves sinners. And so thanks be to God for that. Let me read you this from theologian and pastor Mark Jones. He writes, Our Lord shrieked with cries so that we might sing with praise. He was parched with thirst that we might drink freely from the fountain of life. He was abandoned in the darkness that we might have fellowship in the light. He was crushed that we might be restored. He was publicly shamed that we might be publicly exalted. He was mocked by evildoers that we might be praised by angels. He gave up His Spirit that we might have our spirits saved. As real as His sufferings were, our joys will be no less real. The hellish experience of the cross is the greatest testimony to the unspeakable joys of eternal life with God. Isn't that good? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, would You commit Your Word to our heart and we ask Holy Spirit that You would apply it to us there. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Convict us as we need to be convicted. Correct us as we need to be corrected. And, O God, give us hope, each and every one of us. And for those souls that do not yet believe in you, O God, would you draw them to yourself. Let them see in the cross your glory, your grace, your goodness. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.